welcome to Great Minds and our incredible, incredible guest. And Jerome, we're now at our 100th episode and there was no one I've been more excited to talk to than the one and only Jerome Benton. Welcome, Jerome. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me, doll. All right. So, um, Jerome, we're going to talk about everything. We're going to talk about the time, of course. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the incredible artists that you developed, worked with, and developed friendships with over the years. Janet Jackson, the dearly departed now five years ago, Prince. Uh, but I want to start and go back sort of to 1985 and to Nice, France, and to a movie that's coming up, a very special anniversary. Can we talk about Under the Cherry Moon? Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you want to know about Under the Cherry Moon? It was, a, it was an amazing journey, you know, from, from the fruition that Prince shared with me, uh, putting it together to the, the last date of going home from the, the shoot there at the Nice uh, studio. Uh, it, uh, I, I, I just can't believe that I was chosen to be part of that amazing, that amazing uh, momentous uh, journey. It, it was, and let's, so let's get into it. And just to set the stage, Prince's first movie was Purple Rain. Yes. Which you were also in. Mm -hmm. And Under the Cherry Moon, second film, filmed in France, as we touched on, uh, coming up on 35th anniversary, July 2nd, is it? Yes. Under the Cherry Moon is uh, uh, 35 years old, young. <laughs> and um, uh, I was uh, blessed to be a part of that. Uh, I sit back and every now and then, um, well, not every now and then, let me go back and, and correct that. I turn on the TV a lot and see it playing on these networks, these, these Amazons, these Netflix, these, these HBOs. And um, I take a moment and I stop and, and I'm watching. I'm like, wow. And then I flash back at, at being in Nice, France with Prince Rainier, uh, hanging out when Khashoggi was hanging out in, in the south of France. You know, Khashoggi was the biggest arms dealer in the world at one point. Um, uh, we, we started out um, uh, rooming together at Jackie Collins' house, home up in St. Paul de Vence and um, going to the, the perfume factories in Grasse and uh, uh, hanging out with Princess Stephanie and all of her variety of friends from around the world, um, um, having access to a 180-foot a yacht that Cavallo Ruffalo and Fagnoli, who was Prince's manager, had at the time, and being catered to by a crew of, of 12 people. It's amazing, you know, women in the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> what, what a journey. So you played Tricky. Prince played Christopher, Christopher. Tra Christopher Tracy. Mm -hmm. And... Tell us about the movie, because I think it's one of those movies, Jerome, where over time, I think people love it more today than they did when it came out. Yeah, well, from, from all the things that are, you know, surfacing through so, uh, social media, I'm seeing that people are paying more attention now. It's, it's, and um, when, we, when we were in that movie, that was our fan base. Our fan base was our age. So, you know, there was some adolescence in, in our growth at that time, but now we're more mature. I think people can appreciate, you know, the, the art, artistry of what Prince put together. They're paying more attention to his, his creative songwriting in the movie. Um, you know, that was, that, that was shot by one of the <laughs> greatest DPs in the world, Michael Bauhaus. And um, yeah. Uh, who can who can deny what they did? Yeah, they they you know there weren't weren't a lot of people happy about it, but today I'm hearing that people are starting to really enjoy that movie. I enjoyed it from the very beginning. So that <laughs> and an incredible soundtrack. Don't
the soundtrack was amazing. You know, traveling with him while while we were uh, uh, putting together one of Prince's other creative uh, pieces, of the family. Um, I sat with him and and traveled with him back and forth. We were we were living it up. We were traveling to 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 France, to Paris, to uh, Japan, and back and forth to New York, hanging out in the clubs and, and just enjoying life. But while at, at that same time, Prince was being creative. He was picking up things. He was learning me and, and, and putting this ideal of, of Under the Cherry Moon together in his brain. Um, he finally got it to a place where it was ready to, to, to go to lights, camera, actions. And he said, JB, pack your bags. We're going to France to do a movie. I'm like, oh shit, let's do it. And there we go. You know, one of the one of the elements of, of the creative part of it as well, I got to experience uh Empanema, which is in Brazil, uh, during the time of his creativity for I think it was about 10 days. And we're sitting at the top of this this uh uh I think it's Caesars Park Hotel. And overlooking the ocean, all the beautiful culture of <laughs> Brazil beaches. And um, I'm sitting and listening to him play these tracks that would soon become the, the, the body of Under the Cherry Moon. And, you know, looking back now, I can put it into perspective of what, what it was going on. It's an amazing story. So you, you, Let's stay with Prince for a few minutes because I know how close you are and how much time you spent together. And you talk about during his creative period. What people, I think many people don't know about Prince is how hard he worked, how incredibly prolific he was. And the legendary stories, Jerome, about, you know, he'd be up for three days straight working, but no drugs. So ironic that it was those opioids that took him from us. But he had more energy and created more than perhaps anyone ever in history. He always had the energy. He had the energy. And when it comes to the drug thing, I, I wasn't a drug person. I, I didn't smoke weed. I didn't care for it because it, it messed with the patufu. <laughs> 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 and, um, um, he never did anything in front of me. He never pushed anything on me. Um, uh, I never seen a, a odd behavior. He was he was quiet, but but he communicated with me. Com communicated with me enough. Um, did I just fall for anything? Hell no, no. He was my friend. I wouldn't let him. I'd be like, don't don't do that. Let's let's go. It's time to go. And he would do the same to me. He wouldn't let me get too too far into too many drinks and he would push he was pushed a glass of, of wine away you're cool jb you're cool jerome you don't need don't need a third one let's just enjoy you know and all those things um um he his uh his opioid thing that happened that happened somewhere along the way at the end when i wasn't around i was in touch with you know um when I could get in touch with him, and you know, I I, I don't want to blame any anyone for that, but um, I would I would just throw out there, if he was going through that much pain, I I would have intervened, and um, being a family that has dealt with the medical field and and hospitalization and all those things. And the people that I've come in touch with, I'm a friendly guy, so I've met a lot of people. I would have, I would have pulled him down to the side and said, "Look, man, come on, let's. Your hips hurting you? Let's go figure it out. Let's go figure it out." And um, I would have thought that my friendship maybe was different than anybody else's friendship, so maybe I could have gotten to him. Unfortunately, those people that were were gifted that position. He didn't listen to it. Yeah, no, so sad. But go back and and before the end, there was such a glorious beginning in life, much Ooh. of which he shared with you. 
Go yeah. back to that creative period. What do you mean by that, Jerome? And, and we know he was so prolific, recorded so much, all the stuff that will, we may never hear that's still in his vault today. Talk about that creative period. Well, I sat with him when he was creating. Let's go back to uh, the 1999 tour when Chile popped out and uh, Glamorous Life was being done. Uh, Bells of St. Mark was being created. Um, sitting with him in the studio, falling asleep while he's doing it. You know, that was his space. He was, it was like 10 people in there and it was just me, him and, a, and maybe Susan uh, Rogers. And he's running around that room, playing every instrument, working the board, Susan, could you get this? Next thing you know, food's coming in. And he's staying at that creative space um, and asking, and how's this sound? What do you think about this? Listen to this. And, and you're listening to one part maybe 50 times. You know, it, it, it gets numbing, but the end result is something that we all cherish these days. And um, there's not another creative person like that. You know, I'm, I'm blessed as well to, to be a family member of, of some of the other prolific songwriters in the world, Terry and Jimmy. Terry's my brother. And, and Terry has a different approach to it. You know, he has a whole different approach to songwriting. And he accomplishes what they need to, 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 to sit in those positions of being recognized as great songwriters. Prince had a different approach as well. You know, when we talk about the drug thing again, I don't immerse myself in that. I, I wouldn't have closed my eyes to him if I knew he was doing that to get over with that, you know, so. Yeah, great stuff. So let's talk about Jerome Benton a little bit and let's go back to the beginning. I know your dad worked in a packing house in Omaha and that's where you were born and raised. I was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. My father had a musical family as well. I had an uncle who was with Stax Record, played with Muddy Waters and B.B. King in, the, in that era. And his name was Buster Benton. He's got a couple of songs, uh, Spider in My Stew and things like that. Not Brooke Benton, Buster Benton. He was, uh, he was known as the, the one-legged blues man. He had that, um, as people would talk about in the, in the in the community he had sugar so he became the one-legged blues man from amputation and um he had some cool songs and um my father you know he tinkered at the guitar he wasn't that good and i can remember and and i can say he wasn't that good <laughs> and and terry uh grabbing his guitar and turning it into a bass and, and becoming the the amazing bass player that he is so and we're going to talk about your brother, Terry Lewis, uh, and his partner, Jimmy Jam, in a little bit. But talk about you, Jerome. Were you musical when you were younger? I, I love to dance. I love to to cut up. And I think I'm I'm reverting back to that time now because I like to cut up now. <laughs> Fantastic. And, um, yeah, and one of the best. Yeah. Uh, and um, um, and in high school, we were required, and in elementary school too, we were required to take music classes. And you, you started with the recorder, and you go into the flute, and you go into the sax. And um, in high school, I, I played sax. And, and at uh, uh, junior high school, I, play, I took up sax. But uh, that soon ended because it was uh, overrun by me participating in sports. And it was a little more macho for me to, to be in sports than uh, hanging off of a, a, a gold instrument. <laughs> gotcha. So tell us about your journey from Omaha and ultimately to the great, great city of Minneapolis. Well, my mother and father both had great jobs. My mother worked for Veterans Hospital. My father worked at Armors Packing House went into a scenario where they started closing packing houses around the country. And uh, we had an opp opportunity to move anywhere around the country that Armor was still established. My father chose St. Paul, Minnesota. 
and that was a big uh, Midwest packing house. We moved there and we lived in St. Paul, Paul, Minnesota for about a year and a half. And then we moved to a home in North Minneapolis. And in that community, um, that community was, I think it was just, it, it was, uh, it was cultivating into, you know, what we and our fan base knows as the, the Minneapolis uh, music scene. Uh, Prince was in that community. Uh, Sonny T, uh, Terry Jackson, uh, and Andre Simone. And that community was, it's a, it's a real close knit, probably a five mile radius. And African-Americans thrived in that area. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Spike Moss that would, he had a, a community center that everybody would go to and he would allow bands to practice there. And then he would hold uh, concerts and become battle of the bands. And then they turned into big festivals and things started to happen from there. Prince and Morris was in, and Prince Morris and Andre and Andre's sisters were in one band. And uh, Terry Jellybean and David Island and Cynthia Johnson from Funky Town, I want to take you to Funky Town, was in flight time. And, and then Jimmy Jam was across town and on the south side in Mind and Matter. And all these groups would go to this collection of, of black owned clubs and perform. And then they also would be hired to, to perform for our proms and uh, uh, bowling, bowling banquets and, and all that thing. Everybody knew each other. And uh, that's part of the, the culture that created me and who I am, just being around that and, and, and eating the crumbs of residue of that that funky uh, uh, presence. So, so there were cities in America that have certain words and music associated with them, and and there were studios. You know, you think of the great studios that have a sound, right? We know you mentioned Stax, your uncle, right? Yes, sir. Right. So Stax has a sound. Muscle Shoals in Alabama had a sound. Um, certainly, Chess Records in Chicago had a sound. Chicago has a sound, the home of the blues. Memphis has a sound. Minneapolis has a sound. And you you talked about it a little bit already. But I'm so glad you talked about the Battle of the Bands because I was going to ask you about it. But let's go a little deeper on the emergence of that sound, that Minneapolis, that funk that you were, you were such a central part of, because it's such a big part of musical culture in this country and doesn't get talked about enough, Jerome. I got a chill when you said that because it took me back to our neighborhood, you know, Morgan, uh, Queen Avenue, Xerxes, Plymouth and Penn, all that. At a period of time in that era, in the 70s, you could walk up and down some of the streets and you would hear bands in the basements. A lot of people don't know what basements are. Basements are sub-levels below ground and you have about a, a, a two foot, three foot window and it drops down about five to six feet below that. And it's a subterranean under homes. Well, some of the guys, uh, parents, had enough uh, tolerance to listen to these guys downstairs plucking away and making noise all evening. But as a kid and, and a non-musician, um, outside playing with my friends, I could be outside playing football in the street and the bands would be in the basements playing their songs and it would blare out. Growing up around it, you just kind of just go on with your daily routine. But that was some cultivating, uh, 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 what you call it, uh, axe sawing, uh, axe sawing moments for, for all those musicians. And you could walk up and down many different blocks and a different band. And some bands that I don't even know the names of 
were, were doing it as well, who became musicians in Minneapolis, were doing the same thing. And you could walk up and down these streets and music will be blaring out of these different basements. It's just amazing, you know, uh, and the music is as popular today as it was when it was being created back then. It is. It is. Um, you know, I don't I don't call it the Minneapolis sound. I I, I just believe it. It was a culture that was there that 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 people created it, Minneapolis sound. It, I look at it. These guys were were playing. Uh, P-Funk's music. They were playing uh, Rolling Stones songs. And those aren't Minneapolis sound songs. Those are <laughs> established artists. But the twist that goes on it is people's interpretations on it. And it became something else. And, and that leads you into, you know, Prince listening to music and, and getting his twist on it and, and playing stuff a different way. And so... There you go. Fantastic. So let's talk about uh, you and your brother, Terry Lewis, and Jimmy Jam. And take us back, Jerome, to the early days and the formation of the time. of the times I uh, I think their first name was Wars of Armageddon <laughs> wow and Je Jelly Bean David Island and we kind of had a couple of Roberts in the group and um, they had a horn section they had a big horn section Robert Martin who became a fire chief in Minneapolis uh, 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 Anderson we called him Chipmunk he became a, uh, a wide body pilot for United Airlines. One of the rare, I think it's only 10 of them or 20, 20 of them flying the big planes. David Island, um, who was an amazing musician who still is writing and, um, and raising his son and uh, still an amazing musician, um, plays an amazing Lyricon. Um, Jelly Bean, who has written a, a number of songs with, with Terry and Jimmy. Um, they were all in that same group. And they grew from teen years into adulthood doing this, this great music. Monty Moyer. Monty Moyer was a Southsider who joined Flight Time as well at a place. And, and it solidified the, uh, the element of... Uh, who the time was, and then the outsider, Jesse Johnson, who came from Springfield, Illinois, who joined the group with his unique style of playing. Um, Alexander was, was part of uh, Flight Time at one point, and he uh, later became a solo artist that had number one songs and hit songs all around the world, revered and really huge and in, in Europe, uh, uh, who else? Uh, that's um, that's a, a lot of the journey that, <clears throat> that's a lot of the components of the journey of the, of the folks who are involved with this, this amazing thing that allows me to sit up here and talk. Fantastic. And let's talk a little bit about Morris Day. When did Morris come into the picture? And then I'd love to just talk about, you know, some of those early hits that today we hear them, you know, we still go crazy for Jungle Love, The Bird, and talk about, you know, some of the crazy times you must have had on the road. Well, Morris Day was always part of the time. He was the reason why the time 
got picked up. And let me back up just a little bit too. We have another amazing artist from that same community, Sue Ann Carwell, who is, it was one of the more amazing female vocalists. Um, we all went to the same high school together. Um, you know, um, Morris went to North High and Morris was a component of, of who Prince was as well with Andre. Um, I'm sure everyone's heard the story. Morris um, put together um, some elements of some songs for Prince and, and Prince uh, steered him into a record deal and, and helped him put together a, a record that um, became the first Times record. And the band members from the time, Terry, Jimmy, Jelly Bean, Monty, and Jesse provided a very unique and, and worthy presence to make that believable. And from the record to live performance, it took on a whole different direction and solidified um, the element and it was lived uh, beyond belief uh, with the opportunity that these guys had. Talk about some of those early gigs and your early remembrances of being on stage. You had incredible hits, were playing all over the world. And I was lucky enough to be in the audience many, many times. It was just incredible, Jerome. We were we were young and and hungry and 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 the uh, the 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 rehearsal period that Prince put us through the regiment was 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 strict to a point, but we we received it and we we did what we were supposed to do and yeah there were long hours but. At the end of the day, after that first rehearsal, and we went into that first gig, there was nothing that could stop us. The only thing that could stop us was a power outage, and maybe not that. My journey to stage just happened by just me just fooling around. Um, uh, the old story is, you know, and it's a true story. Um, uh, after all those hours of rehearsal, and listening to the same song, you know, sometimes we rehearse and play one song 18, 25 times in a day stop and when prince came he would stop us and start us and stop us in the middle of some start up in the same place nope that's not where we ended start in the same place so it created just a consistency in who the guys were as musicians and again i i lived through it as well on the sideline and um watching these guys do their uh dance steps i'm standing on the side just doing my dance steps over there and, and you know, it's wearing on me and I'm getting bored. And I, and I was, I was a family member. So I would fool around and, and goof off. And one day um, uh, we were rehearsing at the last minute to do a showcase for uh, the, the management of Cavallo Ruffalo and Farnoli. And, and Prince was running us through it. And I grabbed the mirror off the wall and I ran over to Morse in the part of the song, Somebody Bring Me a Mirror. And I put it up in front of him and Prince just, he rolled, he, he cracked up for a long time and, and said, Jerome, I want you to do that every time now. And that become part, part of the show. Um, there's a clip when we were doing, I think it was Bandstand, one of those shows. And I'm a roadie. And I'm standing behind the speaker, behind uh, Terry's speaker on the uh, stage, stage, uh, 
stage right side and the camera's panning during the performance. And I got, I'm there with my little tight little Afro and I have eye contact with the camera operator and he catches me on it and I'm like, oh shit, what do I do? I just kind of ease back behind the speaker. But after that, Prince wanted me to come out and do this, this little familiar dance move and do it on stage after I present Morris with the mirror. And things just started happening from there. And the next uh, project, he added me to playing percussions, uh, cowbell and syncussions, hand claps, and uh, a Coke bottle. Uh, that's, a, that's a sponsorship there, a Coke, empty Coke. <laughs> And the song was cool. And if you listen to the original version of Cool, you'll, you'll hear a little tinkle sound. And that's a, a Coke bottle that was used on Cool. And, and that's where my career started to blossom. After that, um, uh, it just naturally just started becoming more and more and more. And never had any resistance from any of the band members from what Prince asked me to do because they were all in line with what his, his plan was. And at that point, I can look back and say, what he had in store for us was the best plan. It sure was. And Jerome, you were, I, I just can't say enough. I mean, you know, there's always somebody who you'll say, you know, in a Broadway show or a, or a movie or somebody who's a scene stealer, but in a good way, somebody who like, you know, you would steal the show every time, Jerome. We, we, we loved you. As, as a fan, you lit up that room, Jerome. You really well, did. I think what happens is I become, your, I become your, your friend that sits across from you at the lunch table. I become your friend that you go to the, the, uh, the, the sidewalk party, the pool party. I'm your friend that you see at the grocery store. I'm that guy that gets in trouble and you guys are like, oh, he didn't do that. You know? right. I, yeah. I, this is a relatable relationship that is naturally created. And um, I, I've been blessed, blessed. Thank God, thank God for all y'all. Um, to, to be able to be in that position. And I, I, I want to continue to be a steward for people's enjoyment. Yeah, and you are that. So the first record comes out in 81. I guess Cool was, might have been the biggest hit off the first record. Yeah. Yeah, and, th and, then, and then a year later, 1982, what time is it comes out? Yeah, 777. And what a what a record that is! Yeah, and, and then you know we're not even talking about the slow song, girl, and oh baby, um, when you when you um when you think about that era, we were all young kids. We were we were still trying to figure out how we gonna rap to this girl and get her to just kiss me on the cheek. You know that's what y'all was doing. We was trying to figure out how to get them draws. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you're doing this, Jerome, and you're 20 years old. Uh, and this is all happening. Yeah. 20 years old, young, um, happy to get per diem, happy to be part of something, and and being groomed, and being groomed for uh, uh, a, a a party that still hasn't ended. Amazing. So we've had a lot of great musical acts. I've been very blessed on Great Minds. We talked to Darlene Love. We talked to Steve Cropper from Booker T and the MGs. Right. Uh, a lot of, you know, producers who worked with artists, who worked with the Sam Cooks. Marshall Chess was incredible. You know, Leonard's son, 
the scion of chess records who, you know, grew up with Muddy Waters, grew up with Hal and Wolf. You were a little later. You were on the road in the 80s, right? Very different from traveling in the 50s and 60s in America when Ooh. artists like Sam Cooke and, and so many others, Jackie Wilson, they would play in front of huge white audiences who loved them. But then there was only one hotel they could stay at. And they might mess with them and say, there's only one room in that hotel. And they'd have to put six or seven guys into one little room. And, and, and the cops would hassle them everywhere they went for no reason. Big stars. Yeah. It's interesting that too, because um, growing up in Minneapolis, and you know, Minneapolis was 1% uh, Black back then, maybe a little higher, but we were received by the white audience majorly. You know, their exception of us gave us the confidence as well to be who we were. You know, we would come in and, and, and go to First Avenue and, and, and go to the clubs that were out in Bloomington, uh, the Studio 94s and all those and, and party. And then we would go out and we would go to we would go to Michigan and Detroit being a, a predominantly uh, African-American culture in the clubs that we go to. But we're looking in the audience. And there's a bunch of white folks out there partying hard. And then we go back to our hotel and then we have a multicultural fan base that's hanging out in the club, in the hotel until we wake up and get on a tour bus in the morning. It was amazing. And, and by us being open to all of that, it, it just is blossom. It just blossomed all around the country. We, we were in Ohio. We were in Indiana. We it, it, it was amazing. We filled those we filled those arenas up with Prince with and the Revolution and you know and and it helped too that our bands weren't just um, just one culture. It was multicultural bands. You know, uh, with Monty. Monty is the the, the blackest white dude I know. <laughs> uh -huh. And. and then you have, you know, you have the revolution with Bobby and, and Matt and, and you got Wendy and then you then you got the rest of them, you know, and, and then you had Des, Des Dickerson, who I didn't even know existed in Minneapolis or St. Paul. So, yeah. Great stuff. So, Jerome, when you were on the road, then you're a young guy, you're traveling all over the time, you know, takes off. Um, it was 20, 30 years after those early artists we were talking about were on the road. But did you experience any tough moments where because you were a, a black man, someone didn't treat you right? Um, Prince took care. Prince took good care of us. And us as young men, we demanded respect. Um, we, um, we wouldn't take it. There was some racism out there on the road, but we didn't entertain it. Again, we're from Minneapolis. There's racism in Minneapolis. Um, it wasn't like it is now, but <laughs> right, right. And 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 I might be wrong by saying that, but it it it, it didn't. And we didn't entertain it, so we didn't let it happen. I remember there was a time down south, and we were we were cocky. We we enjoyed who we were. And I remember backstage was, was a little rowdy and, and some folks wanted to hang out. And one of our band members made a statement to the cop and wasn't doing what the, the officer said. And these were sheriffs, you know, and down south, once you get down south, there ain't police no more. There's deputies and sheriffs and stuff. And they're backstage watching us. And I think they were a little jealous, but I, I vaguely remember uh, one of the band members, and I'm being careful on that. <laughs> and the officer said, ooh, nigga, you ain't up north. <laughs> I'll part your ass. And 
that changed our whole function being backstage and down south on their playing turf. So uh, we had to we had to grow up fast and 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 become part of uh, a respectable uh, entity. And you know, one of the things that when I talked, I mentioned Steve Cropper before, lead guitarist and Booker T and the MGs. One of the things that I asked him about Jerome was race in Memphis at the in the at the height of the Stacks era, and he had a great answer. You know, as you know, Booker T and the MGs was four musicians, Al, ja- Al Jackson on drums, Booker T on keyboard, Duck Dunn on bass, and Steve Cropper, mm-hmm. two right. white, two white, two black. Mm-hmm. And Steve said, we didn't see race. You know, we were just all playing music together. And music, more so than anything else, you could argue, you know, you look at the, the two-tone movement in the UK in the 80s, whites and blacks together, bands like the Specials, the English Beat, that whole genre of music at a time when there was great racial strife in the UK. Mm-hmm. The mu- music brought people together. Talk about music's ability to bring us all together and remind us that this is the United States of America. Exactly. And that's what Prince did. That's what Prince did. Us being part of Prince's family, we received that. And that was a thing that, that we as a family exuded through our music. Um, Prince, you know, when he first started, he had an amazing group with Andre and Des Dickerson, Bobby Z and Matt Fink and, and uh, his female uh, keyboard player. And it changed to Wendy and Lisa. And, and then he, he put together our group and our group was mixed. And then he put together the multicultural, the family. And, you know, it's interesting because the family, but a multicultural group. And then, Everything that he did was based on just everybody, every every culture getting along. His his music didn't have a, a white energy. It didn't have a black energy. It had a prince energy, and um, it was welcoming. It didn't have a gender in energy. It was cool, you know. He's saying, you know, if I was your girlfriend, you don't know if it was. He was singing, the girl was singing that to. A girl could sing that song or a guy could sing that song. So it's, you know, he taught us well and he left us with something to, to really cherish. He, he sure did. So you were such a big part of Prince and the Revolution. Any special remembrances, Jerome, from the road? And, you know, it must have been some incredible nights. And I'm sure you saw the sunrise on more than one occasion. I remember... I remember singing happy birthday to him in Detroit and him coming up to me and hugging me. Oh, that's amazing. What, what, what a story. And he, uh, uh, you know, later on he became a Jehovah's whole witness and he didn't celebrate birthdays. So I just take that little special moment and say, ha ha, I got one. <laughs> uh, great story, Jerome. So can we talk about some of the great artists that you've worked with? Let's talk about Janet Jackson. Well, Janet Jackson, Janet Jackson is an amazing young lady. I was, um, I was asked to, to, to um, come be part of, of a video, uh, the control video uh, with uh Terry and Jimmy being the producers of it. John McClain, an amazing record exec at the time at AM Records, um, uh, brought me in to, to work on that. And um, uh, she had some, some elements of uh, a performance that she was doing. And <clears throat> we were dropped inside that with who we were. And I designed uh, some of the uh, uh, choreography. Uh, along with, you know, the components that were involved, myself, Terry, and Jimmy, and Jellybean. And um, we performed that. Along from that, um, we did another video called Diamonds. And, and that was with Herb Albert. 
and uh, T.K. Carter, he's a black comedian, was involved with that as well. He was starting in that and another gentleman by the name of Wolfgang. And um, from there, we went in and we did Keep Your Eye on Me. Uh, Keep Your Eye on Me was Herb Alpert, uh, Tijuana Brass. And um, uh, I became real close to Herb Alpert, you know, based on, you know, the relationship that I had with John and Herb Albert took me under his wing and he would pick me up and take me to eat. And this was long before we even did the video. And next thing we know, we're doing a video in New York and it was all said and done. And uh, from that point on, uh, uh, well, long before that, um, I did uh, I did Prince's uh, uh, Raspberry Beret video. I, I choreographed that. And I uh, co-choreographed a KISS video as well uh, for Prince. Um, I just, uh, just a, lot, a lot of stuff. All that, all that time that I was with, with Prince um, during the uh, Cherry Moon run, um, Girls and Boys choreographed that. Uh, uh, a lot of the stuff on that tour that we, we did, I choreographed that, along with the antics of, of Wally and Brooks, uh, and, and Brown Mark also kicked in as well. And um, the, the antics, uh, the opportunity were, were given to me by just being a friend of, of, of Prince. And uh, I think he, thought I think he believed he could count on me and I came through for those things that people sit back and watch over the years and it's now embedded in history <laughs> it, it sure is Jerome so when you were cutting a rug back in Omaha did uh -huh. you have did you have dreams that ever could have imagined that you'd be you know choreographing you know kiss from uh, under the cherry moon with Prince that all of that came from being in that surroundings with Prince. Um, my mother, and my father were avid bowlers, and they would have their little gatherings after the bowling parties. They would come home and have their scotch parties, and um, we would be young kids, six, seven years old, and my mother watched. We had a color TV back in the 60s. <laughs> and we would watch uh, the Flip Wilson show. And Flip Wilson had a character, Geraldine. And I would watch my mother just, and, and her friends and my dad just laugh and crack up about Geraldine. And my mother wore wigs back then. You know, a lot of women wore wigs back then. And uh, I would put her wig on wrap a towel around me and I had little sisters and put their little skirts on and I would come downstairs and be like, you know, that start acting like Geraldine and Flip Wilson and they would enjoy it. And there was many times where she said, go do your thing boy and come on back down here. And that was the closest thing to entertaining that I had. Shortly after that, I became a, a jock and I started playing a lot of football and, and really pursuing that. And that led me into uh, just separating myself from all entertainment and music stuff. And I went on to Iowa State and, and played a couple of years there and, and came home, uh, uh, had dreams of going to play for the Vikings and uh, they had a tryout back in the 80s and some of the, the elements of, of football, Rufus Bess and Steve Jordan and, and, and uh, uh, Carl Lee, uh, Darren Nelson, all those guys. Um, one of the players said, man, stay doing what you're doing. This ain't gonna last. And um, I stayed doing what I was doing and I'm able to talk to Matt today about this. Stuff. Oh man, Jerome! One of the my 
buddy, John Polk and I, we've seen you together so many times live. And John sent me a note. John sent me a note this morning and said, make sure that uh, I ask you about something that I know is special to you. And that's the Purple Paisley Brunch. Well, the Purple Blade Paisley Brunch was put together by uh, my team, uh, Tanya Giddens and Jill Monroe. They are some amazing women that um, have uh, taken me under their wings and, and, and show me how this, this social media thing works. Um, they don't let me get out there bad. They, uh, they condition me. Um, sometimes I get emotional about stuff and they talk me off the, the ledge and I listen to them. Um, I, 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 sometimes I become too sensitive, but they know what to do. But they love me doing this. They love the opportunity to represent me and put it together. So um, when you guys uh, see Jill and you see Tanya, just give them a hug or a virtual hug and, and thank them for uh, my existence in this platform and uh, their purple paisley brunch, July 2nd. <laughs>